We are in Zechariah chapter 8. Let me read the first eight verses of Zechariah chapter 8. This is, um, it's not as easy to see in your Bibles actually as it is printed in your bulletin. These are five uh, staccato promises uh, from God through Zechariah. And they really all have to do with God's zeal for his people, his love for us, his intention to be with us and to dwell with us. So just let these wash over your soul as you are reminded of God's zeal and love for his people. The word of the Lord of hosts came saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am zealous jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, If it is marvelous in the sight of the remnants of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. Father, would you please bless your word to us this morning, help us to hear your love for your people. Help us to see your love for your people through Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. These are, as I said, you know, five statements where you you see that expression, um, thus says the the Lord of hosts, one um, uh, paraphrase, really, uh, or translation, uh, describes it as thus is a message from the God of angel armies. When you see Lord of hosts, those are the hosts of heaven, the God of angel armies. Um, and these are messages from him. Uh, these verses come to us approximately two years following the first eight visions that Zechariah um, relayed to God's people. And commentators are trying to figure out, so how do you sort of group these five statements? And uh, some look at them as possibly really sort of the, the, the thesis from a number of sermons, possibly that Zechariah was preaching over that two-year interim, uh, or these just came as, um, as just you know, one-liner promises all at once. We're not really sure. Um, but I look at it almost like Zechariah's best of playlist. Uh, it just are these beautiful promises reminding us of the gospel uh, again and again. All of these promises focus on God's heart for Zion, 
uh, for Jerusalem, God's city of, of choice, the place where he says, I'm going to dwell there. These people are going to be mine, and I'm going to be their God. So uh, let's, let's dive in. These, these promises can be summed up pretty, pretty readily. Essentially, God's saying, look, I'm for you. I'm jealous for you. I'm zealous for you. Uh, secondly, he says, I'm with you. I'm going to make my home with you. I'm going to dwell among you. I'm going to literally tabernacle among you. It's where we actually named our church uh, based on that theme of God tabernacling to be among us. Um, thirdly, he says, I'm going to bless you. Um, you know, you're old, you're young, are going to be safe. They're going to be blessed. Uh, he says, I'm going to do marvelous things, things you can't even imagine. I'm going to do miracles among you. And lastly, he says, I'm going to save my people from the east country and the west country. I'm going to bring them home. They're going to be safe, and I'm going to, I'm going to save them. So one way to look at these statements is, uh, is to put them all in the category of, of, of the way that things are supposed to be. This is how God designed his relationship with humanity to, to be experienced. This is, this is supposed to be normative that we would have this intimacy uh, with him, this relationship that cannot be broken. Um, um, and we know that there are things around us that are supposed to be a certain way. Again and again, we, you know, we hear expressions of how God uh, loves us and, uh, and he's restoring us. So uh, there's a book called, it's, uh, called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, uh, which tells you immediately that it's it, it's going to explore how we've gotten away from that. But the author, uh, Cornelius Plantinga Jr., begins with that fundamental place of there is a sense in each of us where we know that things are supposed to be a certain way. Uh, he says central in the classic Christian understanding of the world is a concept of the way things are supposed to be. They ought to be as designed and intended by God, both in creation and in graceful restoration of creation. They are supposed to include peace that adorns and completes justice, mutual respect, and deliberate and widespread attention to the public good. That's the way things are supposed to be, right? So, we know, we, we have a sense of what justice and fairness and goodness all ought to look like. Like when, for instance, um, last Sunday, we all, after worship services, went over to Ridgeview Park, and if you're able to join us, we had a really beautiful picnic and a, um, an amazing game of kickball. Oh, yeah. Um, so we had to leave, the dailies uh, had to leave kickball a little bit early because Lydia was... Um, needing to get over to Wilson uh, High School, there was a, a band concert, right? So there was the middle school and the high school bands were all doing a spring concert. So we, we left early. We were a little bit, you know, rushed. Two cars is sort of typical for us. And, and, um, and I, get to, I get to Wilson uh, High School into the auditorium there, and I don't see, I don't see Kathy. Uh, Lydia's there. So Lydia has been dropped off by Kathy, but Where's Kathy? Um, and Kathy can't get in touch with me, and I don't know where she is because she doesn't have her phone. Uh, and this woman comes up to me as I get into the auditorium, and uh, she's a coworker with Kathy. Um, Kathy works over at Wilson Memorial, uh, at uh, Wilson Workforce Rehabilitation Center. One of her coworkers comes up to me and says, 
So this is a little bit strange, but um, I got a text. This is Kathy's coworker saying she got a text from Kathy's supervisor who got a text from a woman that none of us knows who got Kathy's supervisor's number from a text that came up on the phone because this one found Kathy's phone in the Ridgeview Park parking lot. So, like, all right, this is a, a four-chain link now of finally getting the, the, the phone. And, and so now I'm texting this woman who I have no idea who she is, and, uh, and she is willing She's not only gone out of her way to find a way to get in touch with somebody who knows the owner of the phone, but then I'm like, uh, I'm at a concert, uh, and I can't leave, and I don't, Kathy still hasn't gotten there, and it's just kind of all gone crazy and sideways, and she agrees to meet me at Sheets here in Waynesboro um, after the concert, and, you know, hands, hands me the phone, and I just, I'm like, oh my gosh, and Thank you so much. And she goes, yeah, um, my, my boys didn't want me to return it, but I knew <laughs> this was the right thing to do. I'm like, yes, thank you so much, right? And, uh, uh, and then the next day, I, I sent her a, a follow-up text. Hey, you know, this was so meaningful. Thank you very, very much. Um, hey, if you're comfortable, uh, we, I would love to have your, your mailing address. I'd love to just send you a thank you. And and, this is, and then she texts back saying, hey, no, no need to thank me. It's fine. I just wanted to, you know, return the phone. And I just went, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. This woman, this is how it's supposed to be, right? When somebody just says, all right, I have somebody else's phone, and I'm going to try to get it back to them. Um, and that there's no sort of mercenary thing going on. I mean, I really did want to thank her, and, and, I, and I wanted to, but she was like, no, it's fine. And you just go, wow, that's a, that, why is that so rare? Why is it so unusual that we would, that we would be surprised by that? Um, because some things are supposed to be the way they're supposed to be, and that shouldn't not be the case. Things like, you know, hey, we're supposed to live in a world where uh, what the used car salesman tells you is actually true. Uh, and we're supposed to live in a world where um, what the politicians say on their news you know, interviews and so on is actually true. Go figure. We're supposed to live in a world where you get treated fairly at work, right? Um, we're supposed to live in a world where you are uh, truly loved by your spouse. We're supposed to live in a world where you are obeyed and respected by your kids. We're supposed to live in a world where you are included by your friends. And we're supposed to live in a world where uh, when people talk about you, they tell the truth and they respect your reputation. We're supposed to uh, live in a world where, you know what, you could you can actually leave your car unlocked or your front door of your house unlocked and not worry, you know, what would happen. Some of you remember living in sort of a world like that. I don't know. This hasn't been the case for everybody all the time, but once upon a time. Um, you know, we're supposed to live in a world where you can feel safe walking by yourself downtown, maybe even at night. And we're supposed to live in a world where people are treated with equality, uh, regardless of what color their skin is. Um, and, and, and then there, you get down to some more fundamentals, like we're supposed to live in a world where people have access to to clean drinking water. And we're supposed to 
live in a world where, where people can work and afford to, to find a place to live that will, that will keep them sheltered. We're supposed to live in a world where people can afford healthy food to eat. We're supposed to live in a world where people can actually get access to good health care. Those are good things, and those are some things that God designed for this world. Those are things that God intends for this world. We're supposed to live in a world where people will return something that's lost, that doesn't belong to them, and praise the Lord when it happens. So, um, according to Plantinga, again, he talks about this in terms of shalom, this ancient Hebrew concept of universal peace, like, like all-encompassing peace, where everything is the way it's supposed to be. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. So what's happened, though, is that that shalom, that peace, that way, that way things are supposed to be, uh, chapter one of Plantinga's book is entitled The Vandalism of Shalom. The Vandalism of Shalom, which is a really provocative uh, heading. Um, so in verse two here, you get the first of, of God's promises where he says, I'm for you, right? Um, I'm jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I'm jealous for her with great wrath. Um, that word is complicated and it's broad. It basically means fervor and passion and ardor, you know, he's, he's zealous for us um, in his jealousy for us. Why is he jealous for us? What's behind this passion? Well, um, if you've been tracking with us through Zechariah, you know some of the story. Seventy years prior, uh, the Babylonians had invaded from the north, and they had uh, attacked Judah and destroyed Jerusalem. They tore down the walls. They destroyed the temple, uh, people were deported, and then the Persians took over from the Babylonians and they uh, allowed some of uh, the, the uh, Jewish people to, who had formerly been exiled, they could return back to Jerusalem. They're just basically, their city is rubble, their temple is in ruins, and they're going, what in the world has happened here? And God says, I'm jealous for you. I'm for you. Back in chapter 7, he said, you know, I scattered them with a whirlwind among the nations that they had not known because God's people had turned their back on God. And he said, look, I'm going to hold you accountable for this. Don't do this. And they kept saying, no, 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 we're not going to repent. And he said, all right, you know, here comes the whirlwind. And thus, the land they left was desolate so that no one went to and fro and the pleasant land was made desolate. The pleasant land was vandalized. It was ruined. Do you remember the movie Field of Dreams? Like in the late 80s. Um, so it's this baseball movie. And this guy, uh, the, the, the main um, protagonist, uh, played by Kevin Costner, He's just an Iowa corn farmer. Simple guy, you know, loves baseball, remembers the greats, Shoeless Joe Jackson and so on. And he's in his cornfield one day, as he's prone to do, just hearing voices. <laughs> if you build it, they will come. Uh, that's, where the, that's where that line is from, this movie, uh, Field of Dreams. And so, yeah, uh, he just goes ahead and bulldozes his corn crop and builds a baseball field. 
Um, and everybody, it's sort of like a Noah's Ark thing. This dude's crazy. Um, so, and, and the movie has these uh, baseball legends coming out of the cornfield. Um, not sure if it's a horror movie or a nostalgia movie, uh, the baseball players of the corn. Uh, and they come out, and, and, and it is. It's just this really nostalgic sort of beautiful uh, movie if you love baseball. And the Field of Dreams is still there. The movie set is still there. You can still go visit uh, the, the, this, um, the farmhouse. You can actually rent it out overnight. You, you aficionados, you Shoeless Joe Jackson fans, go stay there, stay in the farmhouse, play all the baseball you want. Um, and, and the good news is that uh, that baseball field has just been brand newly restored because back in January... Somebody decided it would be a really cool thing to do to drive their truck over the wet, cold, sodden infield and outfield and do donuts in 360s and just tore it all up. They tore up the field of dreams. And, the, and, then, and if you look at Google it, you can look up you know, different newspaper um, headlines or different um, you know, articles about... Um, literally one of them had the subtitle, who the blank, fill in the expletive, would do this? Who in the blank would do this? Um, and this, uh, this really respectable uh, bastion of news integrity called TMZ um, <laughs> called this, described this person as soulless and horrible. What soulless, horrible person would vandalize the field of dreams? And they actually caught the guy. He was this 20-year-old punk out on a date trying to impress his girlfriend. And guess who turned him in? I don't think there was a second date if this, if this was the first date. She turns him in, you know, and he's, there's his mugshot and whatever, this horrible, soulless person. Who would vandalize the field of dreams? Who, who, who would destroy something beautiful? Who, who would tarnish something graceful? Who, who would ruin something that, that God has made good? And if any of you are honest, all of us would be raising our hands, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's how this works. I'm not asking for a show of hands, but we know, we know internally that we're all guilty of this. And we do vandalism to what God made good with our words when we use our words as weapons instead of, you know, as bandages uh, to heal. When, when with our, our, our hands or our feet, you know, we, we do damage uh, to things that are intended to be good. Uh, or um, by sitting on our backsides and neglecting uh, to prevent corruption and decay. I mean, these are all the different ways that you and I are vandalizing God's good creation. I love that image on the cover of your bulletin. It just says sin, you know, spray painted on that boxcar. Uh, it's this tag, right? This vandal's tag. And sin is our vandal's tag on God's good city. Uh, and it's our blight on God's good garden. And sin takes what is good and it, and it corrupts it and it 
breaks it and it pollutes it. And that's what we do to the truth with our lives. That's what we do to love with our selfishness. And this makes us all vandals of shalom. But God says that he's jealous. He's jealous for his people. He's for us and he's for his creation. Uh, He's jealous to clean up his creation. And he will vindicate those who have been vandalized. He's going to purify what's been polluted. And the entire message of the Bible, essentially from, from Genesis chapter 3 all the way in the beginning, right after Adam and Eve had vandalized the garden, to Revelation chapter 20, when that garden gets restored and the, there's access renewed to the tree of life, Everything in between is this account of God's jealousy to be for his people again, to make a way for us uh, to be forgiven. Um, We see pictures of that here in in the rest of these promises. Uh, Verse 3 says, basically, God says, I'm with you. I've returned to Zion and I will dwell, I will tabernacle in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Um, the prophets echo this all over the place, all over the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 1 says, for instance, Afterward, you uh, shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. God says, I'm with you. Uh, and he says that I will bless you. Um, that this, this city of God that, that he wants to inhabit, call it Zion, call it Jerusalem, call it the holy city, call it the faithful city, whatever you want to call it, this is God's city, and that he wants to bless it. And then verse 4, you know, there's this image of old people who are you know, hanging out on the benches and the kids are playing and, uh, and everybody is, uh, is getting along and it's beautiful. I like um, Eugene Peterson's uh, phrasing of this, this scene in his uh, paraphrase, the message. He describes it this way, old men and old women will come back to Jerusalem, sit on benches on the streets and spin tails and move around safely with their canes. A good city to grow old in. And boys and girls will fill the public parks laughing and playing. A good city to grow up in. Actually, Verse 5 says that the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. But, you know, that's a weird image, traffic and congestion. You know. it's, think more of public parks, public squares, municipal places where people are gathering in the centers of the city. That's what's pictured here. And, and what's really uh, noteworthy is that Zechariah isn't gauging the city's success or its prosperity based on its GNP or how tall the buildings are, or how much wealth is coming in, or anything like that. Uh, Instead, look at the gauge for God's blessing. God's blessing is measured by the just how profound that peace is, that that old men, old women just feel completely at ease, and they're valued, and, and they're living peacefully in that city, and that the children are playing. People are peaceful, and the children are playful. How's that for a barometer of blessing? That's pretty good. Uh, back in chapter 2, Zechariah reminded us to sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. I will bless your city and I will dwell in your city. 
uh, we get that picture in Revelation. Remember, we, we, um, when we began the series in Zechariah, we were noting that, that Zechariah, among the minor prophets, is really important. Um, it's, among, it's important among all of the prophets because of how often it gets quoted and sort of rehashed in the New Testament, in the Gospels especially, and in Revelation especially, where we hear in chapter 21 things like, hey, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling or the tabernacle of God is with man and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. I feel like you're reading Zechariah all over again. God's going to bless us. He's going to bless his city and be with them. And there's a contrast that's intended here and Zechariah has alluded to it by talking about the daughter of Zion and the daughter of Babylon, previous, previous chapters. But here we're going to contrast the city of God and the city of man. Uh, we're going to borrow from the imagery that St. Augustine used um, way back in 413 AD. So over 1,500 years ago, Augustine wrote a book called The City of God. Um, the but you can go to the city of St. August, Augustine in Florida, and that was named after St. Augustine. And uh, I'm not sure what happened to the pronunciation, whatever. Um, but St. Augustine wrote this book in response to what had happened three years prior in 410 AD when another city, another capital city like Jerusalem, only far more powerful uh, and more prominent than Jerusalem was, was the city of Rome. Uh, and the Visigoths came down and they sacked Rome. Uh, Alaric and his armies uh, destroyed uh, Rome. Uh, and, and there was like this worldwide lament. I want you to imagine what would happen today if somehow New York City or London or Beijing was to be invaded and conquered by, you know, the... Uh, uh, the, the barbarians, and just how shocked and, 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 and in just horrified uh, the world would be if only one of those cities had fallen. Now imagine that there is only one world power, world capital city, and that was Rome uh, in the early part of uh, you know, the first, second, and third centuries in its heyday. There's only one city for the whole world. And it was Rome. That's why all roads led to it. And Rome fell, and there was just worldwide horror and panic. How could this happen? How could this city, um, that, you know, some people said that the whole world perished in one city when Rome fell. How could this happen? And Augustine, not only was he a bishop and a theologian and a philosopher, he was just a good pastor. And he writes this book called The City of God saying, look, Rome is, is just a city like any other city, a city of man. It's not the city of God. God has a plan. He has, his plan is eternal and infinite and his purposes will stand. You don't need to panic that there's a difference between God's city, the city of God, and the city of man. That actually the city of man is opposed to the city of God. They're in opposition to one another. And that where there are places of overlap, what's, 
what's interesting is that the city of man fails to give credit to the city of God for the blessings that the city of man enjoys, things like you know, love and, and kindness and generosity. The city of man experiences those things and it pats itself on the back. Hey, way to go. We're awesome. We did great. Instead of, hey, God's blessed us and this is a gift from him. So the city of man is sort of the summary for the way that things are not supposed to be. God did not intend us to live that kind of life. And I want you to imagine now Jesus coming down from the city of God and coming down to live in the city of man. That's what the incarnation was. Uh, Jesus leaving the sphere where everything is the way that it's supposed to be and then coming down to this world to experience life the way it's not supposed to be. You ever walk through a slum? You ever, you ever been to a, a, like a real slum, like third world kind of slum? And you just look, you look around and you go, oh my gosh, how do people live like this? Everything is broken. Everything is wrong. Everything is in disrepair. Or, um, you know, to borrow a, a phrase from uh, missiologists talk about culture shock uh, that's in reverse. You know, when our missionaries go overseas and, uh, and maybe they go to places that, where there is great need and there is great poverty, and then they come back to the United States and their stomachs turn. You just can't believe how much wealth and excess and waste there is. And they just get, they are physically sick to their stomachs. And then they only, they can, and nobody can relate to it. It's really, it's difficult. It's hard when missionaries return for uh, reasons like that. Anyway. Imagine Jesus with reverse culture shock, just experiencing everything around him is just not the way it's supposed to be. And his mission to come to us uh, from the city of God to the city of man was to bring the shalom of the city of God into the city of man. And to start speaking peace to all of these places that are broken and messed up and wrong. And to begin the restoration and to move the needle, and to push things further down. And what did the city of man do in response to Jesus coming to show us what the city of God is all about? What, what, you know, Jesus comes to show the slum, the city of God, and what does the slum do in response to that? They kill him. And the city of man couldn't abide the, the man from the city of God, so they marched him outside the city, and they crucified him. And they threw him out like last week's trash. That's what Hebrews tells us in chapter 13. Jesus also suffered outside the gate, outside the city, in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. So this is just one of these remarkable places where you see in the life of Jesus something where it wasn't supposed to happen the way it did, but it was according to the plan of him who was going to make and restore things to the way they were supposed to be. Jesus was not supposed to be rejected. He was supposed to be embraced. But he came knowing that he was going to be rejected. He came into a situation where he knew things were not the way they were supposed to be in order because of his plan and his intention, he did what he 
knew to, he had to do in order to, to set the bone straight. And what happened to him? In his body, he was the embodiment of the image of God. He was the perfect man, the perfect God-man. And we took his body and uh, we beat his body, we spit on his body, we flogged his body, we stuck a crown of thorns into the the forehead of his body, uh, mocked him, punched him, uh, beat him with a stick, drove nails through his hands and his feet, crucified him. His body underwent dehydration, uh, thirst, and he ultimately was asphyxiated on the cross. That's what we did to his body. Do you understand that that was a vandalism done to his body? Violence and vandalism done to him. He absorbed and took on the vandalism of shalom onto his very body, not just figuratively, but literally, in order to forgive us. In order to take our sin and our guilt away, that's what was buried in the tomb. And when he rose, he rose with a glorified body, uh, one that was even unrecognizable because it was so different and yet the same. And, you know, those are the bodies that we look forward to. And even his nail wounds in glory are, are beautiful to behold. That's what grace does. And so Jesus makes this way through his willingness to endure what was not supposed to happen so that according to the plan of God, God can justify us. And he can forgive the sins of all of us who you know, contribute to the vandalism of shalom. But we've got to place our faith in him. We've got to recognize, I don't want to stay in the city of man. I don't want to be a part of this anymore. I don't want to, be, I don't want to contribute to this vandalism of shalom. Instead, I want to be in the city of God. And Jesus has made a way for me to move from one city to the other city. And if I stay in the city of man, I'm going to be held responsible and accountable. If I move to the city of God, Jesus takes my accountability on himself. He was held responsible in my place. He bore my guilt. I'm forgiven. And now I can be a new creation. and I can be an agent of what God is doing to restore shalom instead of vandalize it. Isaiah, earlier, you know, we read about how you will be called a, a city of, of righteousness, a city of faithfulness. He goes on and says, Zion shall be redeemed by justice. The, the, the justice of, of Jesus taking the penalty for sins in our place. And you will be redeemed. And those in her who repent by righteousness, trusting in the righteousness and the goodness of Jesus to be applied to us. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together. Those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. You either belong to one city or the other, but not both. And if you're a citizen in the city of God, yes, you may be in the city of man, but you are not of it. We are in the world, but not of the world. And if anything, we're trying to, to change the world and restore the world and, and move the needle and push back evil, and, and see shalom restored. This is, this is why God has us here. And he says that he's going to save his people, right? Look at that um, promise in verse 7. A multitude that is coming from the east country and the west country. And again, Revelation's uh, echoing here about there will be people from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb 
and they're worshiping God, and that's what we look forward to as God gathers people from all points of the compass. And he says, I'm going to save my people. And then lastly, he says, is this too crazy to conceive of? It's not for me. I will do miracles among you. Verse 6, he says that this may seem marvelous in the sight of the remnant. You know, remember those who had come back from exile and they're living among the rubble and the ruin. And God says, look, if this sounds too far-fetched for you, don't worry, it's not far-fetched for me. I will accomplish my purposes. I will restore creation. I will redeem Israel. I will make Jerusalem my home. Now, when you hear those phrases, uh, this is going to sound like a rabbit trail, but it's going to make sense in here in just a second. When you hear those phrases like, I will again dwell in Jerusalem, Zion, my holy city, some of you grew up in in, um, church cultures and, and maybe still have this impression that those are God's promises to the nation of Israel and that that day is still in the future at some point. And when a commentator would say things like, um, you know, this promise uh, to, uh, to, to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem and to restore my people, that that promise contains perhaps the most succinct yet comprehensive statement in all of Scripture of the fact that God is intending to restore Israel to her land and the remnant shall come from all over the earth. Some of you, you know, hear that and you go, yeah, that's exactly what's going to happen. Or, or instead of having um, a, a Zionist uh, perspective on the prophets and on what, what the future is going to hold, you look at what Zechariah is communicating to us here and, and, and you hear this other different commentator say things like this and you go, yeah, this makes sense. These assurances have their ultimate fulfillment in the church, which is spiritual Jerusalem. And in this sense, Jerusalem has been vastly repopulated, and God dwells again in an earthly temple, um, meaning tabernacle. Like like here, right? Here. I don't know which, which um, background you're coming from, which perspective on the future and sort of Israel's role in all this. Um, let me just say, if, if, if you have a biblical rationale, I respect a biblical rationale. Uh, but I do think they're, they're, they're contradictory uh, and that one seems to be a little more beautiful than the other. Let me put it that way. And here's the litmus test. Here's what I think is, at the end of the day, uh, one way to think about, well, which is it? And it's to ask which of those two options, you know, geopolitical Israel back in its prominence, Jerusalem is this, you know, world-dominant capital city uh, and God ruling from there, or is it the church as the spiritual Israel? And which of these is more marvelous is one way to think about it. Which of these would actually, is greater and and um, just more beautiful? Is it one nation raised up and one capital city raised up? Or is it God redeeming all nations? And his zeal to make every city a place that is uh, a place where his, his glory is on display and where shalom is being restored. And that's what happens through churches that are 
planted and growing and established all over the world in every nation so that people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation get exposure to the gospel. They can grow as disciples. They can become agents of restoration and bless their cities. And these churches become colonies of the kingdom of God, putting the city of God on display wherever they are, all over the world. I think that's far more marvelous. And that's why I think you and I at Tabernacle, we are waiting for the day you know, when Jesus restores everything to the way it's supposed to be. That day is coming. We live in the now and the not yet. Some things are the way they're supposed to be, and people return iPhones, and you go, wow, that's awesome. And then we also you know, get slapped in the face with the hardness of life. And things are not the way they're supposed to be. In the meantime, what we are as men and women and children who have moved from the city of God, moved from the city of man to the city of God, we are then enlisted as agents for that restoration of shalom. To remove the vandalism, to clean up the city, to, to bless the city. And I want to give you just two ways to do that. Two homework assignments, <laughs> two applications, and it comes from that whole vision of, of the city being blessed, the, the old and the, and, and the young uh, being peaceful and playful. This week, as, a, as an agent of Shalom's restoration, can you make it your goal to bring more peace into the lives of the people around you? Speak peace to them. Bless them. Make their way easier. Relieve their burden in whatever way God leads you to. Be an agent of his peace. And then help them rejoice. Help people play. I mean, what a beautiful picture of the blessings of God that that we would be playing in the streets as children, right? That's how we're supposed to receive the kingdom of God. How can you help people have more joy? What can you do to simplify their life? And it overlaps with peace. But what can you do to help them laugh and to rejoice in the fact that blessing is coming? You know, this is where, you know, on the one hand we go, all right, I want to do that for the people around me. But you know what? You and I can't do that until we've done that for ourselves. And it's going to be really, really challenging for any of us to speak peace and to bring peace into other people's lives if we don't have that peace your life is an anxious mess, and if you're constantly wrapped around the axle, you need, you need that peace. You need more of what Jesus is offering all of us. We all need more of it. And if it's been a long time since you've just laughed, how are you going to help other people play? We need to do more laughing. We need more joy. We need to remember that's a fruit of the Spirit. And everywhere Jesus went, there was sort of a party that followed him. People just loved being with him. He made them happy. And the Lord lead us to be more peaceful and playful people that bring more peace and playfulness to those around us. Let me pray for us. Our Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace to us through Jesus. Thank you for this vision of shalom being restored. Thank you that there is a future coming uh, that is guaranteed uh, when everything will be the way it's supposed to be. And Lord, in the meantime, uh, we pray for grace uh, to, to help us with the now and the not yet. Help us to be 
um, agents of, of peace and playfulness. And Lord, would you help each of us to grow in the peace and the playfulness that the gospel extends to us. Lord, relieve our anxieties and help us do more laughing um, as we look forward to the new heaven and the new earth. Lord, we, uh, we know there are serious things and, and, and hurtful things in our lives, and we pray that you would help us uh, to bear those according to the hope that Jesus gives us, uh, but don't, don't let us lose sight of peace and playfulness. Lord, we thank you for those in our community who are extending those blessings uh, to those around them. Uh, we thank you for comfort care and for the stride for life yesterday. We pray that you would uh, just continue to provide resources for that ministry so that they can bring.